The scripture reading for today is John 3, verses 22 through 30. It says, Later, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized them. John was baptizing in Anan near Salem. Water was plentiful there. People came to John to be baptized, since John had not yet been put in prison. Some of John's disciples had an argument with a Jew about purification ceremonies. So they went to John and asked him, Rabbi, do you remember the man you spoke so favorably about when he was with you on the other side of the Jordan River? Well, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John answered, People can't receive anything unless it has been given to them from heaven. You are witnesses that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. The groom is the person to whom the bride belongs. The best man who stands and listens to him is overjoyed when the groom speaks. This is the joy that I feel. He must increase in importance while I must decrease in importance. Thank you, Brooke. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. If you do not have a Bible with you, grab a blue one in front of you. Uh, John chapter 3 is on page 741 of it. Uh, we want you to be able to follow along uh, with what we're saying today and know it's not from us. You all look good. Um, look like you're rested today. As you know, you all got one more hour of sleep. That's God apologizing for winter coming. Um, he knows how terrible that is. He knows it's a result of the curse of sin. He feels bad about it, so he gives you an extra hour of sleep. And there's, you know what, there's three or four of you don't look that good. I won't call you out by name. I'll just let you figure out who that is, all right? But uh, the rest of you are looking good and rested today. And um, we got a special guest this morning. If you're here for Sunday school, you met him. Uh, but Amal, would you stand in the back? If you all would look at the back corner back there, that's Amal Jindi. He is one of our missionaries with Palm. Uh, he trains Christian leaders in the Arab world, and, and he's a dear, dear uh, servant of Christ. He's got a table out in this room. So when we wrapped up this morning, the best thing you can do is go out that door, greet him, take one of his prayer cards, and, and make sure he feels the love and support of this place. Thank you, Amal, for being here. Um, every second you spend with that man, you're better off, your life will be better off for it. So uh, take me up on that before you leave today. Uh, let's pray before we jump into John chapter 3. Father, we thank you uh, just for the faithful uh, witness of your word. We thank you for the faithful witness of, of servants like Amal and John the Baptist and others, Lord, that have paved the way for us what it, what it means to walk with Christ in humility. And so, Lord, as we unpack this message today, as we unpack this story in John 3, we just pray that you would teach, that you would speak, and you would move in our midst. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, there are a couple of friends who met uh, together for dinner at a restaurant. It, it had been a while since they'd seen each other, so it was kind of a, kind of a catch-up, how has your life been sort of meal. And so when it came time to order, um, they both ordered the smoked salmon. Um, and then they talked for a while, just, you know, what's going on in your life? Tell me what, how you've been, all this stuff. And it was going really well, and then all of a sudden the evening turned awkward. Um, and it turned awkward when the waiter brought out the food, because instead of handing them both their plates with what they ordered, the waiter gave them both empty plates. And then she then set a platter in the middle of the table with two pieces of smoked salmon on it, but it was clear that one of these pieces was much bigger than the other one. And so they both kind of sat there looking at this, trying to figure out how they should play this, and then finally one of them reached out, he grabbed himself the big piece of salmon and put it on his plate. And his friend said, man, that's pretty gutsy, and honestly kind of rude. 
And the guy shot back, well, hold on a minute, what's your deal? Like, how, how would you have played that? And his friend said, well, I have manners, so obviously I would have given you the bigger piece. And he said, great, that's the one I got. Right? Now, sometime around the 1970s, sociologists noted a shift in American culture. And generations prior to the 1970s, there was, a, there was a great emphasis in our country on being a member of a community, being a member of a family. And the idea that, that to be selfish, to, to not think of others, was consistently looked down upon. It was seen as an unpleasant characteristic, one that no one should aspire to. But starting in the 70s, there was, there was a dramatic cultural shift where, where now the most widely held beliefs and teachings elevate. They actually elevate selfishness and self-sufficiency. Now you're encouraged to look out for yourself first. Now you're encouraged to demand that, that you get treated the way that you want to be treated. You're taught that truth is whatever you choose it to be. You're told that your personal experience is the most important thing in determining values and beliefs and truth. And we've embraced this culture. We've become demanding consumers in all that we do. And some of this has happened without us realizing it, right? Think about it. We couldn't even imagine what it would be like to have to get out of our car and to walk inside a bank to get cash. Or if you're a millennial, to even use cash, if you even know what that is, right? We, we would lose our minds if you had to call someone's home phone and leave a message if they weren't there and wait for hours for them to return and call us back, right? Having four channels and no DVR, no Netflix, not being able to watch something when you want to watch it is unthinkable to many because we're consumers. We're consumers who have demands that need to be met by those who provide what we consume. I've mentioned to you before stories from from our missions trips to Germany in, with this church. But one of the things that stands out to me in Germany is just a complete and utter lack of customer service. Right? For once, uh, for starters, the Germans aren't the warmest people. I don't know if you knew that. They're just not warm people, okay? But on top of that, they've never bought into this capitalistic idea that the customer is always right. That notion simply doesn't exist over there. And while it's a culture shock, I think it was good for my soul to eat at a restaurant and their attitude basically be, we don't need you. In fact, we're not even sure if we want you here. So you're not in charge of this, right? And the reason I think that it's good for my soul is because we have this tendency, right? We have this tendency to become a consumer in every area of our lives. Where it's one thing if our phone company or bank don't treat us the way we like, so we go to another phone company or bank. But what happens when we use our marriages like this? What happens when we view our jobs and our churches and our friendships like this? Give me what I want or I'm gone. Because the most important needs in, to be met in my life are my own. We're encouraged from a young age in this culture to build our own kingdom. We're encouraged from a young age to look out for ourselves first. We're encouraged from a young age to self-promote and self-exalt, and it's killing us. The family structure in America is crumbling before our eyes. Entire generations are being raised in less than ideal situations. Marriages are just falling by the wayside, causing lifetimes of pain. And each generation becomes more and more self-isolated and withdrawn. Social media is replacing real human interaction, and our souls are dying. And in this country, we are simply unwilling to admit the obvious trends. We're unwilling to change this direction or to call into question this gospel of self. And all along, standing in direct contrast to this, has been the word of God. This beacon of truth that comes along and tells you and loves you enough to tell you plainly and clearly, this life is simply not about you. The universe does not exist because of you. The universe does not exist to serve you, right? If all the universe were a movie, then God would be the star of the movie, not you. At best, you'd have this little bit part. You'd be an extra that appears in the background for a second and then be gone, and no one would even notice you're there. 
to the most wisest, like the wisest, most fulfilling, most joyful thing that you can do is to submit yourself to the story that God is writing and stop trying to write your own. Because you see the trouble with self-made men and women is that they worship their creator. And you make a terrible God. So Jesus came along and said, stop looking out for yourself. He came along and said, it's those who lose their lives for me. Not those who try and save them, but those who lose their lives for me who find real, Troy, true, joyful life. Today in our, burn, in our journey through the book of John, we're going to see both of these philosophies play out. We're going to see one group of individuals who are looking out for themselves and who, oh, their entire concern is about self-advancement. And we're going to see a man who refuses to self-promote, who's not concerned about himself at all. And then we're just going to watch and see which one of these philosophies lead to peace and joy and fulfillment. So let's jump in, starting at verse 22, right where Brooke read. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out in the Judean countryside, where we spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptized in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. All right, now if you've been with us as we've gone through the whole book of John, you know in chapter 1 we spent a lot of time on John the Baptist. We talked about how the ministry that God gave this man was to prepare the people for Jesus and for the kingdom of God by calling them to repent. And there was a brief time here in John chapter 3, right? There's a brief time where Jesus' ministry has begun and John's ministry hasn't ended yet. And so both are in operation at the same time. Which just had to be cool because the two greatest preachers to ever walk this earth were doing their thing at the exact same time in the same region. What a time to be alive then. And our author, different John, uh, mentions that Jesus, after his conversation with Nicodemus, he went out into the Judean countryside, out in the wilderness with his disciples. And just like John was doing, they were baptizing people. And we're told in the start of chapter 4 that it wasn't actually Jesus who baptized anyone, but his disciples did. So what we have in operation here in John chapter 3 is John the Baptist is in the wilderness, he's preaching and baptizing. And Jesus is in the wilderness and he's preaching and his disciples are baptizing. And I may be the only one, right, but it struck me as funny. I love how John dispels this notion that this should be any kind of conflict or big deal because he writes in verse 23, it's all cool, there's plenty of water, right? Now, being a desert climate, it's likely that there were a few places there were a lot of water, but I just want to say to all of you, right, if you want to get baptized, and we want you to if you haven't, there's plenty of water, okay? We can fill that thing up every week, and we'd love to, right? Now, in verse 24, we're told something interesting. John mentions that this occurred before John the Baptist was put into prison. For now, we're just going to let that sit. We're just going to let that be foreshadowing because we're going to cover that in detail before we're done this morning. But up until this moment in John 3, Jesus and John have been on the same page all along. But in verse 25, we're going to see this first moment of disturbance where someone tries to mess that up. This first temptation as people try to drive a wedge between the two. Look at John chapter 3, verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, remember we saw in John 1 that, that, that like Jesus, John the Baptist had disciples. Well, here in verse 25, we're told that some of John the Baptist's disciples get into this argument. They get into this debate with a certain Jew. Who is this guy? I have no idea. Uh, John didn't care to tell us. It's almost as if he purposely didn't want to tell us. Right, but this debate was over something that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we covered when Jesus turned the water into wine, where the Jews had added to the law a whole list of this ceremonial cleansing rituals, these extensive hand-washing, hand body-washing, face-washing rituals that were meant to spiritually cleanse you, they said. And we told you that Jesus just ignored these ceremonies. 
He had no time for them. But this guy is arguing with John's disciples. He still wants them to be in practice. He still holds them in value. And so the debate is likely over this. It's likely over the value of baptizing versus the value of ceremonial cleansing. Which one's more important? Which one does God actually command, et cetera, right? And at some point in this debate, this guy hits John's disciples right where it hurts. At some point, he takes this debate off topic. But what he said landed because it got them off message. It offended them, and they come to John about it. Look at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing. Everyone's going to him. Now, you can fill in the blanks there, can't you? I mean, it doesn't take much to see what happened during this debate. At some point, as they're arguing like third graders, this certain Jew slapped this on them. Oh, yeah, why should I listen to you? You guys are nothing more than old news. I mean, you're old news. You're yesterday's story. All the big crowds are going to see Jesus now. You guys are irrelevant. And they had nothing to say back because it was true. And so they come to John, and they're ticked off. They've had their feelings hurt, and rather than think about things rationally, they come to John the Baptist looking for answers. Rabbi, you're not going to believe this. Or that guy you said all those nice things about, the one you baptized, you're not going to believe. Guess what he's doing now? He's going around and teaching, and they're baptizing people. That dude is stealing your ministry. And what's worse is he's getting away with it because everybody's going to see him now. You know what they're saying? John, don't you see? Our chairs and our pews, they're not as full as they used to be. Our numbers are down, right? We're becoming a laughing stock. Aren't you going to do something about this? They appeal to John's pride here. They appeal to his desire to be a big deal. And it's ridiculous because he's shown again and again and again he's not interested in those things. But the reason that they believe he'll be interested in those things is because they're interested in those things. Let's all just level with each other this morning. They're not worried about John at all, are they? Who are they worried about? It's considered a high honor to be the disciple of a well-known rabbi. To be the disciple of the most well-known, the most celebrated rabbi of your time, man, that was a great honor. And for these guys, it's been good. Up to this point, they've ridden John's coattails to high esteem. People respected them. They looked up to them. They valued them. And now this Jesus guy has come along. And not only can they not win a debate against a certain Jew, but he mocks them for being yesterday's, yesterday's news. Because the selfish heart always keeps score. The prideful heart always keeps track of numbers. The arrogant heart always compares. The self-exalting heart always wants to be in the limelight. And John's disciples, they're running the numbers here. And until recently they won, but now they're not a big deal anymore. Now they're number two. Now they have less numbers. Now they matter less to the masses. And they don't like how that feels. It doesn't stroke their ego. In fact, it hurts it. Now, the Bible, being the word of God, is, is living and active, we're told. It is full of really powerful lines that should make you just stop in your tracks and consider things. But given the context of John 3, given what has happened in his life and what the disciples are coming and complaining about, what John says to these men next is, is arguably, in my opinion, one of the most powerful statements in all the Bible. Look what he says in John 3, 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given him from heaven. That sentence is loaded with faith-driven humility. At no point in the Gospel of John does John the Baptist lose sight of his role in standing. 
He was given an awesome and powerful ministry by God, and he was faithful to complete it. And his job was to make way for the Messiah. His job was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And in doing so, he garnered a lot of attention and a lot of fame. Think about it. In preaching to a people group who were desperately looking for the Messiah, meant that as John prepared them for the Messiah, many people would start to wonder if John himself was the Messiah. Is he the big deal? Yet John the Baptist remained faithful to his calling. He never got a big head. He never made it about him. He never talked about himself much at all. He never self-promoted. He simply stayed in his lane. He did his job. And now we know why. It's because he never lost sight of who he was and where his orders came from. He looks at his disciples and he's thinking, "What, what exactly do you want me to do about this, boys? Because somewhere along the line, they've believed that their amount of influence is something that they control. Somewhere along the way, they believe that their popularity is directly related to their faithfulness. Somewhere along the way, they have believed that success is measured by how important other people think you are. And John the Baptist is a really powerful lesson for them about ministry and just about life in general. A man can only receive what is given him from heaven. This is Paul, later in the Bible, writing to the church in Corinth and just asking them this question. What exactly do you have that you haven't received? He's challenged them. Go ahead, list off everything in your life that you built, that you acquired, and that you got all on your own. None of it was because of opportunities and skills and gifts that were given to you. None of it was because of the help of other people. None of it was because of the chances God gave you. Go ahead and list that out, and you'll find that list to be empty. Because a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. You're not as awesome as you've made yourself to believe, and neither am I. John is expressing the biblical concept that success is measured by faithfulness, not by any other measurement we give it. If success was measured by popularity and numbers, then Jonah was a much more successful prophet than Jeremiah. And if you read those books, you know how laughable and insane that is. This is what John is teaching these guys. All of our gifts, all of our opportunities in this life come from God. And so when we use those gifts, when we take advantage of those opportunities, we must do so for his glory and not our own. And when you have that mindset, that frees you up. There's no more counting money. There's no more measuring how many people are coming into you versus someone else. There's no keeping score. It is faithfully serving God right where he has you. And then leaving all the results, all the influence, all the promotion, all the advancement, all of that to him. And whatever he decides to do in and through you, you receive that. You didn't earn it. You don't find pride in it. You receive it gratefully and thankfully. And then he goes on to remind them what they received. Verse 28. He says, guys, you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. The first thing he reminds them is what they should have all understood. You guys, he said, again and again, I told you I'm not the Messiah, but that I was sent ahead of him. Remember back in chapter 1 when, when John sees and identifies Jesus as the Lamb of the God, the Messiah, a couple of his disciples immediately leave John and follow Jesus. Why? Because apparently they'd been listening. They're the ones who had been listening to John all along. They'd heard what John was teaching, and there was a bigger deal coming, so they followed the bigger deal. These guys who stayed, apparently at least some of them remained because they hadn't been listening. They remained because all along they had been caught up in the hype that comes from being the big thing. Because once everyone started going to Jesus, they didn't even ask why. They just wanted to know what John was going to do to get all the people back to them. 
And so John tells them, um, sort of been preparing, this for you, preparing you for this the whole time. I don't know why this is a shock. And then he starts talking about a custom at Near Eastern weddings at the time. And some of these customs at the weddings were crazy intense. For instance, today at a wedding, the best man has a few jobs. Right, traditionally in our culture, the best man plans the bachelor party. He gives a toast. And mainly and most importantly, he just tries not to look like an idiot at the wedding. Okay, he checks those three things off. He's a good best man. In that day, the best man was commissioned to be a joyful servant. Right, and so the job of the best man was to go ahead of the groom and to get everything ready. Right? He's the one who prepares the room. He's the one who covers all the logistics and details. He's the one that makes sure the food and the wine and everything is getting prepared. And this was not considered a burden. This was considered a high honor. And for anybody who had this role, it was, a, it was a joyous thing when the groom finally showed up for his bride because the best man's job was complete and he had prepared everything so that the groom could come for his bride with absolutely no worries. And John tells the disciples, that's the job that I was given from heaven. Don't you get it? Out of everyone who's ever lived on this earth, I got to prepare people for the celebration. Jesus has come for his bride, and my joy is endless because this is why I was sent, to make way for him. And John tells them, my joy is full and it is complete. You see, that's the thing, right? That's the thing we never tell anyone. Because in this country, we are dishonest teachers and philosophers. If you try and put yourself first, if you spend your life trying to promote yourself and advance yourself, if you play for the audience of you, not only will your joy not be complete, your life will be marked by a decided absence of joy. Because living for yourself never pays off, ever. For one, you're never satisfied. You're never content. For all that you do, you never find peace. And this isn't profound. Just open your eyes. You don't have to be an astute observer of our society to know that, that we are people marked by a huge absence of peace. Just look at this group we're reading about this morning. On the one hand, you have John's disciples who are all about themselves, all about their fame, who are they're keeping score, wanting to be successful. And on the other hand, you have John who never made it about himself, refused to self-promote, didn't ever believe that he was building or had built anything. He just positioned himself as a man who received from God. And John's disciples, they're offended and they're angry and they're demanding something be done. And John's saying, man, I'm joyous and my joy is complete and full. Couldn't be happier. And then John tells him, hey, here's what has happened. Here's what's going to happen from here. Look at verse 30. He must become greater. And I must become less. Now that word must is used all throughout chapter 3. It's a word that carries significant weight. The Greek word there means necessary and unavoidable. So it's necessary and unavoidable in chapter 3 verse 7 that all sinners must be born again to have eternal life. It is necessary and unavoidable in verse 14 that Jesus must die on the cross for the sins of the world. Now it's necessary and unavoidable for John to fade out of the limelight and Jesus to step onto the stage. This is what God has determined. This is what God has set into place. There's no reason to fight against this, fellas, is what he's telling his disciples. This is going down. This is happening. And so you've got two choices. When you can fight for your own self-promotion, you can fight for your own glory, you can live for you. And if you do the rest of your days, you're going to remain in a state of discontentment and anger and lack of peace. Or you can submit to this joyfully. Praise God for whatever he's given you, and your joy will be full and complete. Listen, this is more than an accurate prediction of the future by John. This is a great principle for us to live our lives by. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and he gives you platforms, think about it. What you do for a living, 
The people that you're in relationships with, those you have influence over, the neighborhood that you live in, those you work with, those you have authority over, all that is a stage. And all those stages you've received from heaven. Now maybe you believe you did that. Now maybe you think you earned all that and deserve the glory and credit. Allow me just to remove that notion from you this morning. You received that from heaven. You have, that was a gift from God. And God has conditions with those gifts. He has expectations for you when he hands you those stages. And his expectations are this. He expects you to play and work and serve and talk and live and worship and exist for his glory and not your own. Because he must increase and you must decrease. We've done our jobs as followers of Christ when the people that we live with and are around are more impressed with Jesus than they are with us. The famous missionary Hudson Taylor was asked to be a guest speaker at a church in Australia once. And the pastor stood up uh, to introduce Hudson Taylor to the crowd. And he went on and on and on about all that Taylor had accomplished for the kingdom of God. And he described him in these many glowing terms, including the word great. He just kept saying it. And after this long introduction, he finally closed it out by saying, It's my honor to introduce you, the great Hudson Taylor. And the church erupts into applause. And Taylor walked up to the pulpit and then he quietly said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Right, if John the Baptist heard that in heaven, he pumped his fist and said, that's my boy. Right, because that's everything. That's the way to live life. To position yourself as one who receives from heaven and who exists to bring glory to God. To serve God where he has you and trust him with the results and with your future. To be perfectly content with where you are. Believing that he gave you that platform for a reason. It's the best way to live. But even as I say that, I want you to hear it clearly. It's the best way to live. But that doesn't mean it comes with guaranteed success. As we typically define success at least. Because when we live to honor God, we play by his rules and his definitions. And oftentimes our dreams may not match his plans. Oftentimes what we define as success doesn't mirror his definition. And so before we're done, I want you to see this in the life of John. Because John the Baptist states here in John 3, he knows, he knows that he's to fade out of the limelight. But I don't think he knew how that would happen or how painful it would be. So to see that, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. If you're in your Bibles, turn back to the left, three books. In the blue Bibles, if you're following along, that's page 682. Three books back to the left in Matthew chapter 11. And when you're there, when I hear pages stop, we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew 11 verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison... Heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's probably not what John had in mind when he said he must decrease. I mean, think about it, put yourself in his shoes. I, I, I believe John envisioned the crowds going to Jesus. I, env I believe that John envisioned people stopped coming to him altogether and then he could sit back and watch as the Messiah ushered in God's kingdom. 
he eventually would get this front row seat to whatever God was going to do in and through Jesus. We'd expect him to be there and celebrate the resurrection with Jesus. We'd expect him to be there in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. We'd expect him to live to an old age and die with his heart full of joy and get his reward to heaven. Because, I mean, he earned that, right? The man did every single thing asked of him. He was the most faithful and humble servant ever. In verse 11 of this chapter, if you don't believe me, Jesus himself will call John the Baptist the greatest human being ever born of women. So if you don't take my word for it, take his. So we'd expect at least a nice retirement package, wouldn't we? But now in Matthew 11, he's in jail, and he's been put there by Herod, and Herod's wife really wants him dead. And so John is a human, and he begins to wonder, wait a minute, did I get this right? Did I, did I somehow mess this up? Is, is Jesus really the Messiah? I, I, I mean, I did everything I was supposed to, right? So he calls his disciples to him and he sends them with the, to ask that question. And I want you to see, this is less doubting that Jesus is who John said he is. It's more this question. Jesus, if I did everything right, why am I in prison? And that's a really fair question. So I want you to see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does, who does not stumble on account of me. That, I mean, that looks like good news, right? It's a great list. Jesus just quotes the prophet Isaiah here. Isaiah gave several prophecies recorded for us in Isaiah 29, 35, 61, and more about the coming age of the Messiah. And so Isaiah talked about what the Messiah's ministry would be marked by, and John would know this list well. John would have had it memorized. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would, be, would give sight to the blind, that the lame would walk, that the lepers would be cleansed, the deaf would hear, the dead would be raised, and the good news would be proclaimed to the poor. And Jesus is telling John's disciples, go back and tell John all that's going down. It's all happening. And so many people read this as an encouraging message to John. John, you did get it right. It's okay. And that was, it was in a sense, but there was also a direct message within this from Jesus to John because Jesus left something off the list. It was something that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would do that both John and Jesus would know was on the list and Jesus doesn't mention it. And so you can picture John sitting there in the cell, hearing the disciples repeat Jesus' answer to him. Blind see, okay, lame walk, deaf hear, lepers cleanse, dead raised, good news to the poor. Wait, is that all? Are you, are you sure he didn't say anything else? Because what Jesus leaves off the list is this, and the prisoners will be set free. And so we must understand that this was the message that Jesus sends to John. Yes, John, you got it right. I am the one, and you're never leaving that prison. You're going to die for me there. You see, this is the hurdle that we face when living the way that John lived. This is why we don't position ourselves as people who simply receive from heaven. Because what happens when what we receive is what we don't want? As Christians, we must ready ourselves for troubles. We mustn't be surprised when in this world we face troubles because Jesus promised we would. So living life like John the Baptist is still the best way to live. It comes with no guarantees, though, of health and prosperity and success and dreams realized or comfort. And it's still the best way to live by far. And here's why. There are countless people in John's day and since who got the cushy retirement. 
Countless people who, who lived their lives mainly free from illness and disease, who lived to a really old age, who had their freedom, and they are completely anonymous. We have no idea who they are. We have no idea whether or not their life impacted anyone else. Their story hasn't helped us at all, but John, and John's story has carried throughout generations. His example has been used to strengthen Christians for thousands of years. His ministry is still being used by God to prepare people's hearts for receiving Jesus. His influence has carried on long after his life was snuffed out. And it's all because he was a man committed to making much of Jesus and not himself. So listen, there, there are no false promises this morning. If you live this way, there are no guarantees that God's plans will match your dreams. There's no guarantee of comfort or reprieve from illness or suffering and sorrow. There is no guarantee of an absence of trouble. In fact, there's a guarantee that troubles will come. But here's what will happen. Your life will actually matter. It will matter. So the only way that your story can carry on for all eternity is to insert yourself into the story that God is writing. The only way to do that is to commit to living this life to make much of Him. And after all... If you're in Jesus, you're guaranteed eternal life forever. So I don't know about you, but I'd rather be beheaded in a prison at a young age and have God use my story to impact countless souls for Jesus than to live a long life on this earth serving only myself. I mean, do you want your one life count to count? Do you want to make a real lasting difference in this one life, this one platform that God has given you? Then position yourself as someone who only receives from heaven. Position yourself as someone who knows that he must increase and you must decrease and trust him to use you in the way that he deems fit. I mean, who knows where he'll take you? Who knows what he might accomplish through you? Who knows what will happen? He knows. That's the point. So let go of this ridiculous idea of control. Freely hand the keys over to God and whatever he brings your way, receive it and give him the glory through it. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the many examples you give us in the Bible, good and bad. I'm thankful for the examples of, of people like Job who went through the trial and at the end you restored everything back to him and he lived that cushy life to an old age. I'm thankful for the stories of people like John who did everything you asked of him and he was beheaded in a prison. And God, the point of all of it is that you're in control. The point of all of it is that you'll use each one of us as you see fit to bring glory to you. And the more that we fight against that, the less joy that we have. So God, these idols of self-promotion, these idols of self-exaltation, these idols of control are strong in this country. They're strong in our hearts and strong in our lives. So we need you, we need your spirit, we need Jesus to come and break us free from those chains and become a church that simply receives what you have for us. God, as we receive the platforms you give us, as we receive the successes you give us, as we receive the trials that you give us, help us to use each and every opportunity to make much of you and not ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.